0: Um, Hopefully that will help us. I've got an image uh, for you to have a look at. What What do you think? What do you think? Apparently, men, an increasing number of men, are considering Botox these days. What do you think? Is that beautiful? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure either about the binding of children's feet or the painting of your face with white lead, as Queen Elizabeth did. seems that uh, many people in our world go to quite extreme measures to you know, pursue an ideal of beauty. Um, it's uh, very kind of cringeworthy for me, the concept of having a needle anywhere near your lip. It just seems an all too difficult process for an outcome that, in my mind, is uh, not so conclusive. So maybe a better question than, is this beautiful? Maybe a better and more pertinent question is, why would you bother? Why would you bother with the cost? Why would you bother with the pain? Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you pursue this form of beauty? Take it down. Thanks, Wayne. How do people come to that ideal of beauty? How do people have this concept that these kinds of lips, as opposed to these kinds of lips, are more beautiful? Clearly, someone pursuing that kind of beauty is taking deliberate, costly, and sacrificial steps towards becoming an ideal. They're losing something of who they are now, to gain something of who they wish to become. They're losing something of who they are now, to gain something of what they wish to become, so fixated on an ideal. And they're not simply content with admiring it in magazines, but people in what, you know, if the media is correct, fairly significant numbers are pursuing this kind of alteration to their, faith, their face because of this concept of beauty. But how, do, how does that come about? How do you conceive of that larger inflated lips being beautiful? Well, One answer is in a book, Perfect Me, Beauty as an Ethical Ideal. Author and professor Heather Widows says far from being a triviality, beauty is becoming a dominant moral framework in which many individuals are judging themselves and those around them. She says this in the book, she says when we talk about letting ourselves go, we don't just mean that we've failed in one aspect of success, it's regarded as a failure of the self. She says in the book that there's a, this shift increasingly in the nature of our media, which is by definition visual and so dominant. And we immerse ourselves in this kind of culture that is so visual and dominant around so, so, social media and around individualism and consumerism. And this professor says, Professor Widows, Um, she thinks that the most significant factor in the shift that's occurring in our world and its connection with beauty is the idea of the self. It's not simply, you know, social media and these forms of um, influence, but how we see ourselves. She says, we can only be sold cleansers that make our pores disappear If we have bought the view that some kind of perfect HD skin tone that no human actually has is what we should have, what's she saying? You've got an unrealistic ideal of beauty pervasive in our culture, and many of us are feeling constrained and pushed by unrealistic notions of beauty, so bombarded we are by these images, so immersed we are in this kind of of culture. If If we're immersed in this kind of culture, it shapes us. It shapes our ideals of what beauty is. And so if your ideal of beauty is unreal, what happens? You begin to look unreal. Doesn't Botox kind of look unreal? It doesn't have a natural quality about it. And I think that's because the ideal is unreal. The ideal isn't natural. The ideal for many of us is unobtainable. And so we're caught in this dynamic. You can see it there on your outline, one of cultural saturation, which brings about these aspirational ideals, which leads to deep longings in us or obsessions. And what we're going to see here as we look at Psalm 135 is that this kind of dynamic is at work. It's at work as people are consumed by the idols out there. But disturbingly, it's also at work in us, because we are, a, we are saturated in the same culture. We've been looking at the book of Judges over the past ten weeks, we've got three more sermons to go. We've seen this. We've seen that the people of God, surrounded by the nations, have taken on their ideals They've grown with to aspire what the nations aspire around them. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, what is shaping us? What are our ideals? And who are we worshipping? Why don't you open up to Psalm 135. I want to give us a bit of background to the psalm. We're going to be focusing on three three or four verses towards the end. But I want to give us um, a background before we get to those verses because it appears as though Psalm 135 is written for a special occasion, a feast for the people of Israel. And it incorporates quotes from many other sections of scripture. It's like this tapestry that's been woven together and arranged for this special moment in the life of Israel as they gather for a feast in Jerusalem. You see there that there's a structure already we've read as we began our service. There's this uh, start of praise within the the psalm. The first section there in verses 1 to 4 is calling on those who are present at this gathering, this assembly, or if you like, this church, to praise God. To praise him for what? Well, for the greatness in creation. And he's also to be praised, and this praise is to be expressed personally and publicly. Why? Why? Because God has acted in that way. He's acted personally and publicly. He's acted personally with Jacob. And he's acted publicly in saving him and the nation of Israel. And therefore, the praise of this nation should be personal. Praise the Lord. Everyone is the call of this psalm. Not just the priests. Everyone is to praise the Lord. And in verses 5 to 7, we are reminded that God is great in creation. God is so great in creation that that's so obvious for us, even in the 21st century, and also for those in the ancient world. You see the power of lightning. It's frightening. It's amazing. It's worthy of praise. You see the rain come down. It's something in flood that is frightening. It's something normally that's of great thanks for God for providing the rain for crops And the wind as well is a moment. The sheer force of the wind is something to praise God for. But as significant as these displays of power might be in creation, in verses 5 and 7, they are nothing. They are nothing compared to what God has done in redemption. And that's really the next section. It's how God has acted in redemption, in redemptive history, to rescue his people. And it's not just the mere existence of lightning or rain which should consume the people of God for praise for what he has done. No, there is something in the psalmist's mind so much more incredible, so much more powerful than lightning and floods and hurricanes. There is the salvation of God for his people. These very elements of lightning... These elements of rain and wind, they are used by God. They are used by God to bring about this salvation. This is so clearly seen in Israel's history in their rescue from Egypt in verse 9. He says you want to see God's goodness, you want to see his power. It's not simply in the wind, it's not simply in the rain... It's most profoundly how wind, rain and lightning are used by God to rescue his people. Signs and wonders were used in creation and deployed in redemption. See, God doesn't just, verse 9, passively send the rain. He actively sends, Well, we read in Exodus, hail on his people's enemies, in the seventh plague. He doesn't just passively allow the wind to blow gently. He actively uses that wind to rescue God's people through those waters out of Egypt on the, and on the way to the promised land. See, Israel have experienced in first hand God's power They've experienced his goodness, his activity in salvation, his graciousness. And so, verse 13, because they've seen it in creation, they've known it in redemption, they are verse 13. They are to praise Him, to praise his name, O Lord, forever. And in many ways, the psalm could end there. That would be a nice way to start with praise, to see what God's done in the world, and then the way he's rescued, and then to end with this moment of praise, that's nice. That's, that, that, that'd be enough for me. But he doesn't, does he? And that brings us to these kind of four really intriguing and interesting verses in verses 15 to 18. Let me read them for us. The psalmist says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is their breath in their mouths. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, the psalmist has outlined for the people of Israel, he's calling this assembly to praise God for creation, redemption. And then, strangely, he moves in to describe, well, not anything what God has done, but to describe these counterfeit gods, these so-called small-g gods. Why take the glory from God? Isn't the psalmist all about the glory of God? Isn't that what we read in the Bible? Why? Why speak about how pathetic the idols are? I mean, if you were running Amazon, this global book-selling company, you wouldn't run on your website some kid trying to flog his year nine maths signpost textbook, would you? You just wouldn't, you know, (laughs) compared to the the might of Amazon, some kid wanting to flog his textbook is nothing. So why does a psalmist here do the equivalent? What do you think? You tell me, what do you think? Right? Okay, because in Israel they keep going back to to these idols. Yep. Any other thoughts as to why the psalmist just kind of pauses in this middle of praise for God and then focuses on these idols? He's mocking them. warn there's warning there's mocking yep yeah. okay to to encourage and praise god for what he's done yep okay yeah jim okay so so the the contrast the god who who acts so decisively he doesn't just make the rain. He doesn't just make the wind. He channels that wind for the salvation of Israel. Yeah, I think all those points are really helpful. And one of them is this mockery, uh, and it's it's really a comedic comparison, isn't it? The idols, verse fifteen, of the nations are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. The psalmist is acknowledging that at least there is something precious in these idols. They're made by silver and gold. They're not made by, you know, lesser metals. They're made by silver and gold. But they're made by the hands of men. This isn't just the focus of this psalm. In fact, throughout the scriptures, and particularly the prophets, we see them railing against the idols, that the nation of Israel has embraced. We've seen this in the book of Judges, that God can be so gracious to his people, so powerful and so obvious to bring them to this land and the first thing they do in this land is ignore him and pursue these dumb, mute, blind idols. Isaiah hates idols. And he hates them with such caustic, and devastating force. He has this critique and God gives him these words in Isaiah 44. You can flip to it if you like, but you can just listen to it um, as well. In Isaiah 44 verses 6 to 7, God says before these idols, almost as if it's this, um, this match, God in one corner, the idols in the other. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. See, God challenges these idols to speak. And then Isaiah, he imagines he imagines that just this man, it's a, it's a blacksmith sometimes, it's a carpenter at, at other times, and he engages in this really kind of interesting piece of satire. He says that the person making the idol in Isaiah chapter 44 verse 14 cuts down the cedars and perhaps he took a cypress or an oak, he let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread with these trees but he fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he prepares for the fire. Over uh, it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, ah I am warm. See this fire. From the rest he makes a god, he's idol, he bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. Why does God here in Isaiah taunt these idols? Because people attribute value to something that they are willing to burn. You see, all these idols in the psalmist's mind, in Isaiah's mind, suffer from the same fatal defect. They are made by man. And when they are made by man, they all look the same. They're all out of the same mould because these idols made by man can't rise above their creator. If they're made by a man, they cannot be better than a man. He says in verse 13 of Isaiah 44, he shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory. You see, when we turn our back on God, we have to fill that gap for where God is. But the reality of human rebellion, the reality of what it is to be human, is that we will always fill it with something less than God. We always fill it with, you know what, We always fill it with ourselves and our glory. We've seen this in history. Consider one of the most anti-religious, the most anti-God regimes in all of human history, modern human history at least. The Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin. Have a look at this side slide. Can anyone read Russian? Tell you what that is. That's a uh, that's a brooch. uh, displaying the emblem of the society of the godless, known as the League of Militant Atheists. An organisation ran from the uh, 20s to the 40s of intellectuals, the very kind of smartest people in the Soviet Union, collecting themselves to imagine a society better, to plan with all their might, with all their strength. And so they bulldoze churches, Russian orthodox churches and synagogues? Atheism became a state enforced dogma? And did it produce this utopia that all these intellectuals who wore this badge so proudly thought? No. On the contrary, worship was redirected to a new deity. If it wasn't to be directed to God, it would be directed somewhere. It was to Stalin. While tens of millions of so-called heretics who refused to bow, they were executed and starved for not worshipping this man. The society of the godless was anything but godless. It was a god that was refashioned in whose likeness? In man's likeness. G.K. Chesterton observed, once we abolish God, the government becomes God. We see this as well in liberal Christianity. We see that liberal Christianity is a form of making a form of God less than he is because it puts man at the centre. It's not, uh, liberal Christianity represents more us reaching for God and conceiving God the way we like to think of him, rather than God coming to us and him telling us what he is like. We have a great privilege, brothers and sisters, if we are Christian, of knowing who God is, of knowing who God is, and yet we too easily become weary. We too easily become weary of the preciousness of what it is to know the God who has saved us. We come here as a assembly of God's people to praise His name. We come here because we too easily walk away from this kind of God. And we refashion God in our own image. We refashion God the way we like Him to be. In verses 16 and 17, we see there in the psalm the emptiness, the lifelessness of the idols. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath. I think that the word there is life or spirit in their mouths. The nature of these idols are pathetic. They're dumb, blind and deaf. They can't speak to help you. They can't see into your heart or your predicament. They can't hear your need. And yet, friends, why is this psalmist writing it? Why is he writing these words if this is what the nations do? Well, we know from the book of Judges this isn't simply what the nations do. This is what God's people do as well. And so Psalm 135 is not really a critique of the nations, it's a critique of Israel. It's an internal critique. It's a critique of God's own people here. And this is not just a concern of the people of old, but a concern for us. The writer to the Hebrews says, essentially, don't trust yourself. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, he says this, But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see what the writer there says? He says, essentially, you're in the same situation as God's people were of old. Don't trust yourself. We too easily, we know this, we too easily slip away from the truth of God. And here the writer of Hebrews chapter 3 says if you're not being encouraged essentially you're at great risk of falling away. Don't trust yourself. And how often do you need to be encouraged? Well it's not just once a week. He says this. Encourage one another daily. Why? Because sin is so deceitful. We only need a couple of hours, a couple of seconds for our minds, which at one moment are so focused on God, to then become so focused on ourselves. So, such is the, um, the nature of living in this world. You know, what's the graph of the spiritual temperature of the book of Judges? Is it doing this <laughs> or is it doing this? It's decline if you map it over the length of the book. And so therefore, the longer you are a Christian, the greater you are at risk of falling away. This is the logic of the book of Judges. This is the warning from the writer of the Hebrews. Don't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The evil one is out to trick us. He's out to trick us. And so we need the encouragement of one another. We need a community of God's people. Don't trust yourself and don't do it alone. Thirdly and lastly, is the power or the influence or the effect of the idol there in verse 18. Uh, John, the writer, of 1 John is this elder statesman, but by the time he writes the letter of 1 John, he's been a Christian for a very long time. He's seen things come, he's seen things go, and he has this piece of pithy little advice for Christians as he closes out his letter in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. He says these four words Keep yourself from idols keep yourself from idols. What, from bits of stick that are carved and worshipped? Our kids read this book. It's called, It's Not Not a Stick. Has anyone seen that children's book, It's Not Not a Stick? This kid in the book, you know, picks up a stick and there he is imagining this stick to be a sword. And then the next moment, it's a a fishing rod And I think it's his parents say, you know, put away that stick. And the refrain throughout the book is, it's not, not a stick. Because in his mind, it's a sword. It's a fishing rod. Friends, this is the case for us. The idols that surround us are many. But the idols get their power when we give them this kind of power. Paul acknowledges this in 1 Corinthians 8. He says that, you know, idols aren't really a big deal. In verse 4, he says, we know an idol is nothing. There's actually nothing behind an idol. But then, moments later, in chapter 10, verse 14, he says to the Christians he is writing to flee from idolatry. An idol is nothing but flee from idolatry. Why? Why? Because we, like anyone else who has ever confessed the name as, of Jesus Christ as Lord, know that we too often give a power to these idols that surround us. More than they deserve. More than we know. And something happens when we do that. There in verse 18 of Psalm 135. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. See what happens as we are surrounded by a world that is led not by the spirit of God but by the spirit of the evil one. Humanity moulds idols. And then surprisingly those same idols mould man. Friends, there's a warning here in Psalm 135 that we need to take very seriously the control that our world has on us, the way we too easily will pursue anything but God. But we also need to be encouraged. We need to be encouraged that God is taking us, God is taking us to a place of beauty, that that's where we're headed We're headed to this place of beauty not because we're doing things to ourselves to make us more beautiful. No, we have in the gospel the promise that God is taking us to the beauty of the conformity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's doing this. By his spirit, we read in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 18 that we're being transformed into the likeness of Christ. We read in Romans 8:29 that we're being conformed to the likeness of the Son. God is at work in us. If we could just realise he's at work in us not to conform us to notions of worldly beauty but to conform us to the most beautiful the divine beauty the lord jesus christ and friends this is not something we do to ourselves it is not a labor of pain we're reminded that god's work in us to take us from the idols of our world and bring us to the conformity of the lord jesus is for us perfect freedom in 2 corinthians chapter 3 verse 17 we're told that god's spirit is at work where the spirit of the lord is There is freedom. God's goal is to make us like Christ. And he's working by his power to accomplish this through his spirit. And we ought to know the joy of that. We ought to know the joy of what it is to be conformed to the image of God. We ought to hear this morning the warning. But we ought to rejoice in the work of God Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can cast ourselves on you. We thank you that we can run to you and so receive us graciously. Father, we long for the freedom of the Spirit. We know we can't change ourselves. And so, Father, we ask that you would change us by your Spirit into the likeness of your Son. Amen. Please stand as we.